welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we expand our pop culture horizons by exploring movies, music, television, and books that are new to us. I'm Sam. I'm Tessa. And joining us today to talk about the Godfather trilogy is Melissa. Hello. Hello. In our very first Bomble 2.0 regular episode. Yay! <laughs> you get to be the very first person I'm so to talk about. I'm so excited. <laughs> I was going to say Mumble 2.0. It's like Mumble, but cool. But then I remembered we're not cool. We're, we're, it was never cool, but no. you know, like, it was it's close okay. to being cool. We're cooler than NFTs. <laughs> Wait, it's not cool here? <laughs> Melissa brings up she our brings coolness yeah, quotient right. quite okay. a bit. I so. think we did it. that you guys are very cool. And Mumble's very cool. <laughs> what are you guys talking about? Well, we appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're officially part of it now, so, I mean, I guess it has to be. (laughs) Because podcasting is a visual medium. We did it. I made a little. You did it. I made a little finger with my heart. No, (laughs) I made a little heart (laughs) with my fingers. (laughs) Your heart gave us the middle finger, I think. (laughs) Oh, it happened so fast. It's only been a minute. <laughs> ah, it is our first episode of 2023. It is our first episode of Mumble 2.0. And we're going to start it off nice and simple. A little underhanded slow ball right over the plate anybody could hit. We're going to talk about the entire Godfather trilogy. The hype around this movie isn't insane at all. No. <laughs> well, what do you think this is? Star Wars? <laughs> I mean, come on, it's it's not, I mean, and of course there is a connection, as I mentioned in our Star Wars episodes a couple of times. These are, we, we are looking at two trilogies over the last two months. The first one was Star Wars, you know, created by George Lucas, and The Godfather, created by George Lucas's best friend, Francis Ford Coppola. I, I have an admission to make that I have not actually made to Sam yet. I am. I think this is great. I thought that these movies were directed by Scorsese until like three months ago. <laughs> I don't know why. I mean, it's because Scorsese also made mob movies, so like I, I understand yeah. why. Yeah, but yeah, <laughs> I don't necessarily think I thought Scorsese directed them like specifically. Three months ago, if you would have asked me who directed the Godfather trilogy. I wouldn't have been able to tell you, and I would have maybe picked wrong on a multiple choice questionnaire. (laughs) I mean, in addition to The Irishman, he, of course, did direct The Departed and Gangs of New York and Casino and Goodfellas, which will come up again next week because of Lorraine Bracco's involvement in The Sopranos. I really feel like that's a triangulation right there between Francis Ford Coppola with The Godfather Scorsese with Goodfellas and then David Chase with The Sopranos. But yeah, he certainly did. And I mean, he might have done more mob movies than Coppola has done. So I mean, if you're going to talk about like the two people who have defined mob storytelling in U.S. cinema, it's definitely those two people. So considering the fact that I hadn't seen any of those movies until this last week, it is understandable why I would have confused them in my mind. I'll ask this question to get us started then. I'll start off 
asking questions about The Godfather by asking a question about the Scorsese movie that I know you haven't seen, Tessa, and that I don't know that you've seen or not, Melissa, which is Scorsese's Gangs of New York, which is about crime, but it's not really about crime. It's about America. You said, Tessa, that The Godfather is about organized crime, but it's not really. It's about America, isn't it? (laughs) I think you're right. I think there's a lot in The Godfather films about America, but then also it is this You know, I was thinking about, you know, why I hadn't seen these films and why I was kind of resistant to seeing these films. Like, I wasn't like, I'm never going to see the Godfather trilogy, but I I was just very much like not interested in watching these films for a very long time. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that there were there has been so much like mob storytelling over the last couple of decades. And it for some reason had never occurred to me that the Godfather was actually amongst the first of the films to like really talk about this particular niche of American culture, right. Or cultures within cultures. And I actually think that this is not just about America. It's about who are, who are the outsiders in America? Who are the insiders? Like what, how does organized crime represent you know, a group of people who have found themselves on the outside, what happens when they become insiders. You know, there is a lot of really interesting ideas about the U.S. in here. But as has been mentioned before, it is also about family, both uppercase F family and lowercase F family. And I, I would I would say that those are probably the two biggest themes that I came away with from these films, even more than a knowledge of the mob or the mafia or the family. Um, it, I think these films are a lot more character driven than I thought that they would be. I always filed mob movies under stories about men. Um, and I don't think that that my opinion has changed on that. Um, and we'll talk about that. I think a little bit later, but they are much more interesting and much more nuanced than I thought they would be going into them. If somebody were to ask you to, to, you know, Say, what's the Godfather trilogy about, Melissa? What would you say? It would be hard, I think, to come up with a succinct answer because they're about all those things that you mentioned. And I, because they have such like an overshadowing cultural legacy, like watching the Godfather films is almost more about like experiencing film history for me more than it is about anything in the films because I. <laughs> Not to take, like, the metaphor too far, but, like, deciding to be on this episode, it wasn't really a decision. You asked me if I wanted to do it. I said yes immediately. But then I was like, (laughs) oh, no. (laughs) Like, these are such, like, important films to film history. I have never approached being um, a movie fan or my, like, cinema education in any type of methodical way. I hadn't seen any of those films on your mob movies film list. None of them. I mean, I've seen Peaky Blinders and that's it. And that's not even American. (laughs) (laughs) Although Peaky Blinders also came up when we were watching the trilogy. So yeah, I had a moment of being like, oh, I have seen this actually. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I was initially very excited and then secondarily like overwhelmed by the length of the films and also the cultural legacy I think 
I mean, the way that some of the characters in these films are overwhelmed by the events and like the way that the family works in these films, especially I think the women, I don't think that they, I think that they are pretty clear eyed about what's going on, but just like the events that are around them have no choice but to overwhelm them because of their place in the family. So yeah, overwhelmed at the beginning and then slightly underwhelmed and then I'm, I'm back up. I'm back up. <laughs> are you, are you just well? Well, yes, I'm well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it all balances out. <laughs> no, I, but I do. I, this was a really, I mean, I don't know if I ever would have sat down to watch the Godfather trilogy without this project. And then doing this really um, like synthesized how monkey off my backlog, like works for me at least um and this clarified i listened to your trailer for the new return of monkey this morning and it really put that into perspective it's talk you guys talking about how you are changing the format just a little bit to focus more on analysis than just giving recommendations i was like okay yes i have now seen the godfather trilogy but this probably won't be the last time I watch them. And this probably won't be, won't be the time I get the most from them because now I'm starting a journey with films when I watch them for the first time rather than checking them off a list, I think. I don't know how intentional I'm going to be about rewatching films in the new year, but that's something I've been thinking about at least for like the last year or so. And I was definitely thinking about it a lot when I finished the first Godfather film and I was like, hmm, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was that. <laughs> I mean, I can tell you that uh, I saw the first two in 1995. And and I mean, it's not just true for these two movies. It's true for a lot of things. But uh, if you go back, I, I, every time I look at my letterbox, it's like there were more rewatches last year than there were first time watches. And a lot of that is down to the fact that a lot of what Tessa and I decide to watch are things one of us hasn't seen yet, but the other one has. And so whenever it's my turn to revisit something, it has never ceased to be that thing that you describe that you think will happen, which it, it, it will, because that's what's happening for me when I'm rewatching all of these things and getting a lot more out of them. And it's, it's really valuable. But I also think the thing that you said that is most interesting. So we were having a discussion with uh, with Matt on the Discord this morning about a potential episode late, later this year on n- the new Hollywood. Uh, since a lot of us are reading the uh, Easy Riders book uh, in February, I think. And it, it strikes me how much of films that we watch, it's like you described. You're not just watching a movie. You're like, soaking in film history and that changes the experience it's hard to approach a lot of things like let's just watch a movie like one day i'm gonna watch lawrence of arabia which is the next film down for me on the afi list that i haven't seen i'm gonna watch it i'm not gonna be watching lawrence of arabia i'm going to be watching one of the top afi movies of all time i did that last year actually as yeah. part of the Music Box's 70 millimeter fest. And it felt like that. I don't know how I really feel about Lawrence of Arabia as a film, but I definitely feel very strong, positive feelings about the experience of making the decision to go watch a three hour movie, having the opportunity yeah. to see it in the theater. All that stuff's really important to me. Way more important to me than <laughs> the film Lawrence of Arabia is. 
personally. I think it's interesting too, like bringing this back to the Godfather, especially the first one, but the the second two as well. I because I am a person who lives in the U.S. and knows people who watch films. You know, it's You're impossible. Per- Wait, hold on. We have to stop. You're a person. Yeah, I'm a person. I'm sorry. I, of course, I knew about like a couple of scenes from this film because they're very, very famous. And I knew like one of the lines from the third one because it's very, very famous and it gets quoted a lot, you know, and there's there's all these references. But it was very interesting watching these films and going, oh, that's where that comes from. Like like you said, like watching Peaky Blinders and being like, oh, that was a reference. I had no idea. You know, like it was it does change the way that you view certain films when they have such a presence in cinema or even just in pop culture in general to be like, oh yeah, this other thing I love, like got something from this film or like this was a reference that I just didn't get, you know, the first time that I saw it or whatever. And so it is very, it is interesting to watch a film that way. But like you said, it can also change the way that you experience the film itself because you're thinking about all these other texts that are related to it. Yeah. And not to like continue to bury the lead, but it was, and I don't want to like navigate your own podcast for you, but it was the, it was the Godfather part one that after I finished it, I was pretty underwhelmed by it. And like Asterix, I was having a bad day. So it's not completely fair for the movie. And then I was kind of stewing about it because I felt like, disappointed not embarrassed but I felt like it was something about the day I was having or something about me was like making me not love this movie that quote unquote everyone loves and then I just decided that for the premise of this podcast I'm not supposed to have seen this movie three times and have developed a working relationship with it (laughs) it's off my catalog now I watched it and the first time I watched it I understood the gravitas I could see what people loved about it but I didn't really feel that strongly about it either way the stuff I felt strongest about was stuff that I didn't like about it and that doesn't really seem it didn't really seem fair to the movie but then I'm in my head like why do I have to be fair to one of the most beloved movies of all time like it gets its due (laughs) (laughs) yeah I was about to say Francis Ford Coppola's feelings are not hurt because I watched it in a bad mood and didn't love it Uh, you know, it. I think that there's a lot of what I'm hearing before we actually talk about the the movies themselves is is how much of the things that are around the periphery of movies determine how we feel about the actual movie. Mm-hmm. You know, going back to the 70 millimeter thing for a second, talking about is there a difference between seeing a movie that's meant to be seen, you know, either because somebody has that, you know, that that um, art house or restoration presentation in mind, which I, I swear is what Quentin Tarantino thinks about all the time. Or you talk about movies that were shot in something like CinemaScope or whatever and being able to show those more closely to the way they were exhibited before. And does that make a difference? Well, of course it does. Of course it does. And then you get into a discussion of who has the opportunity to see that and who doesn't, and how does that affect the art itself? And of course, coming out of a pandemic, we've had a huge discussion about that. But then there's also seeing a movie on a bad day or seeing it at the wrong time. I mean, and the and that doesn't even get into the issue of Godfather 1 
and Godfather 2. Seeing Godfather before Godfather 2 existed has to be a different experience Mm -hmm. than after it. I, you know, I have seen, my first time seeing these movies was as Godfather 1 and Godfather 2. I have also seen them, for the most part, as uh, the Godfather saga, which is something that they did to get some more money out of specifically television broadcasting. And they showed it on AMC until a few years ago. They took The Godfather 1 and Godfather 2 and just hacked all the scenes and then put them in chronological order and then just put it as like one five-hour thing. That exists. And that's a different experience. It's an experience that's never shown on the big screen. It's only something you could watch on TV. And then The Godfather 3, which has existed in at least three different versions that everybody still hates Sofia Coppola in. <laughs> you know, Which so, I think is unfair. Spoiler I think for they're jealous. I think, I think Go on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one. isn't that just... Isn't that just what moms say when <laughs> their child is being bullied for being too pretty and too cool and too talented? Okay. All right. Yeah. So, okay. Yep. Yep. I think it's an interesting conversation, and I I think it's one that we will continue to have, especially as we have several folks on this podcast whose relationships to films are are very different, and. I think different's the right way to describe it. And I think it's interesting. But let's talk about The Godfather, the first movie from 1972. First question, very, very quickly, because I've already alluded to this. Is The Godfather the third best movie of all time? I feel underqualified (laughs) to comment on that. But it also feels kind of hard to believe that that would be true, at least for me. I have a better question for you, Melissa. Okay. Is there a third best movie of all time? (laughs) I'm not asking what it is. I'm asking you if there is one. I mean, I find it hard to believe that an objective best movies of all time list exists or like maybe even should exist. Because are we just kind of getting more into canon at that point, which is a problematic concept all on its own? Because who decides that is always the question. Well, and if you list the 100 best movies when there's literally countless movies, I mean, aren't you just picking amongst favorites? Like, it should just be a non-linear pool of good movies. (laughs) (laughs) Non-linear pool of good movies. That should be Melissa's list. Like, it should be just like... My new band name. (laughs) Forget the AFI. Like, non-linear pool of good movies. That's that's what we should I I also to. Well, I also want to point out, you know, because I'm talking about the American Film Institute's list. And I just I I need you to understand that they came up with the original list. And it was really it was a cool moment. I mean, I knew people in dorm rooms with the poster of the top 100, just a list where you could like check it off. I mean, it was cool. But I need you to understand the first list was Citizen Kane, Casablanca, The Godfather, Gone with the Wind, and Lawrence of Arabia. Great. Top five list. No notes. Fine, let's do it. Except the AFI themselves came back 10 years later and were like, uh, never mind, never mind, do over. It's actually Citizen Kane, The Godfather, Casablanca, Raging Bull, Singing in the Rain, 
and fuck gone with the wind in Lawrence and of Arabia. They said that, right? The they fuck, did say fuck that. Gone with they the did wind say that. They got, De Niro. that in they got De Niro to say it. And Joe <laughs> Pesci was behind him saying, yeah. Did they drop them off the list completely or are they just they're, reordered? They're six, no, they're six and seven. Okay. <laughs> they're six and seven. Well, so then the other problem is, is that like every time I look at the AFI list, I am so underwhelmed by the diversity the lack of diversity on that list. Like the movies you just mentioned, like all of them are directed by white men and they are mostly about white men. Um, And so it's, you know, I'm not trying to say that any of those aren't really good movies. They all clearly are. The question is like, are we weighting them that way unfairly? And this was actually part of the issue that I had with watching the Godfather to begin with and the Sopranos, which we're going to talk about next week is that, there's this thing, I think, that a lot of men who are movie critics or movie important movie uh, discourse havers, don't, I should say. Don't don't pick your words carefully. Don't and do this it. Is, this, isn't, uh, this isn't just film, I should say. Literature has the exact same problem. There's this issue with men's stories being treated like they're universal stories and women's stories and people of color stories being treated like turning oh, red is not relatable at all. It's not relatable. It's just about women or it's just about Asian people or it's just for black people. Like those are those people's stories, but men's stories like like the God. And that's the thing you hear about the Godfather a lot is that it's universally relatable in some way. And I do think it's a great movie. But the question is, is that how much of this universal relatability is actually universal and how Mm -hmm. much is it weighted in lists like this? And so I think. When I answer that question is, no, I don't think this is the third best film of all time. Like, it did not make me cry Mm -hmm. or, you know, it didn't have, like, that kind of effect on me. And again, that might answer your question, Sam, about whether there should be a third best movie of all time, since we all have different reactions to different kinds of stories. But I think think it's really ironic, by the way, that, that you talk about whiteness. And that is a that is one of the big themes of the Godfather. Is, that, are that, they white? They're not. Yeah. Are they? Yeah. I mean, but you get what I'm saying. Like putting aside the Italian history in the U.S., which is its own thing, it is not the same as talking about perhaps the women in this movie or you know other people of color um, in the U.S. at the same time. However, I will say this is a very good movie. Like, I was actually a little afraid that I was going to be underwhelmed by it because of all the hype around it and because of the issues that I've mentioned so far. But there wasn't a moment during this movie where I wanted to, like, tune out or that I was bored or that I wasn't very interested in the characters on the screen. And I think it is because it is exploring this sort of niche culture and it is investing in its characters in a way that... I find very interesting. So this this movie, of course, was a big deal when it came out too. You know, it, it won Best Picture. Coppola and Puzo also won for Best Adapted Screenplay. Marlon Brando won for Best Actor, and that turned out to be the most low key awards acceptance. Oh my god! Let's not uh, even get into his acceptance. I, I mean. This was also the Marlon Brando renaissance. This was the Marlon Brando rises. It's just like Bruce Wayne in the third Christopher (laughs) Nolan Batman movie. He is out of shape. Everything hurts. He can barely squeeze himself into a suit. It is is just like that. And he goes straight from this to Apocalypse Now. 
Right. This is this is the second act. Yeah. For Marlon Brando, it, and he has, I mean, his his physicality has completely changed. I mean, it's. I really find it hard to believe this is the same person who was on On the Waterfront, and Streetcar. But he does good work with cotton in his mouth. Did he really have cotton in his mouth? He did for hit the audition. Oh, okay. Or the screen I'm test, or whatever it is, Marlon Brando does. I was does. Ask that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's, if there, it's actually in there for the film, but it is something he did to establish character. As we know, Marlon Brando is a method actor. <laughs> so. I mean, it works for him in this film. I think. I I said to you, Tessa, when we were watching this. I, I was like, look at the performance that Marlon Brando is giving here. And and do you know Tessa? Actually, I'll ask you, Melissa, because I, I know Tessa knows now. Do you know who Marlon Brando's favorite person to talk about acting techniques with was? That cat he held at the beginning. <laughs> close. Very close. <laughs> I don't. Marilyn Monroe. Oh. Yeah, they were both. It's it's actually really interesting because I know this because of the Joyce Carol Oates book on which that thing on Netflix is based. But, uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> but they were both huge fans of Stanislavski. They're very serious about it. Anyway, Brando's being Brando. Although right? I do want to give a shout out to that cat who I also noticed at the beginning of the film and who is doing excellent work as well. Cats do great work on film. I yeah, cannot believe I yeah. did not know that there was a cat in this movie. There's a cat on the poster, which is funny. There's a cat on the poster. There's a cat on a poster, I guess I should say. Okay. Because <laughs> okay. I, it's very good. I did a lot of googling during this project. <laughs> yeah. What did we think about his performance in this? I thought the voice thing, because at first I thought it was kind of gimmicky, and then I kind of realized that what he was doing was like he was he's playing like the most non-threatening threatening person which I think is very interesting. Yeah, I kind of felt, um, eventually I came to feel like by the end of the movie that it, yeah, it wasn't that he is necessarily like putting on an affect, the character, not Brando, because Brando obviously is, but it's just like, I'm old and tired and this job is very hard. And so if you want to be in here with me, you need to get very close so that you can understand what I'm saying, because I'm done putting a lot of effort into it. <laughs> Absolutely. I love that reading. Very. Except for the small part. Very small, very tired. Yeah. And you can see. And you can see Hawaii, the stress that I'm under. Yeah. Uh, it's like yeah, that I thing they say about soft talkers. Like they're doing it as a manipulation tactic to make you get close to them and pay attention. (laughs) Make you come to him. Well, that opening scene is so interesting. And it's obviously one of the more famous scenes that gets quoted a lot. I can't believe the famous line from this movie is like in the first scene. (laughs) In the very first scene. I know. I was like, whoa, they just like opened up. It's like Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Everybody (laughs) knows the first part. It's like the first line. (laughs) Well, no, I, what I think is very interesting about that scene is the ways, and, and they do this throughout all three films, but it's like set up so well in this first scene where he is speaking in this very soft voice, but the way that that office is set up and the way that people come in and out and position themselves around him, he very much is like a monarch, like in mm-hmm. like a throne room, like it, the way that, I mean, he's he's literally in an office that's, that's boarded up so, you know, that the sound doesn't from his daughter's wedding doesn't like 
overwhelm what everybody is saying. And he's drinking wine out of a, a, a water glass. But like it, it is very much positioned in a way that makes it very clear that even though he is like this soft spoken person, that he is like the person that ever even just the way people move around yeah. him is very like he is like the, the person in the room. My Godfather trilogy confession is that I did not realize <laughs> that his name wasn't Don. <laughs> oh, <laughs> until like <laughs> pretty far into the movie. <laughs> That's a lot like Mon Mothma. Mon is her first name, I guess. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, we're going to try to talk about these movies one by one, but I do want to point out the the beginning scenes of each of these three movies talk to each other. They do. This uh, is a wedding. It is tradition on tradition on tradition, with with the exception of the singer that they've, you know, propped up, right? And then the beginning of the second movie is another celebration, but it is the whitest celebration. There is tradition, not much to be found there which matches the struggle that Michael is having to reenact that Godfather role that his father had in the first movie. And then in the third movie, where you have him trying to evade that Godfather role and do something else, you have that beginning celebration that is retro, like completely retro, up to and including the one non-authentic thing from the first movie who drags his old carcass in to sing a song again. It's it's so it's so interesting. Well, I really like that. It also yeah. tells you a lot about like the positionality of where they are too, not just in return in regards to whiteness, which I definitely want to talk about, but like in the first movie everyone's speaking Italian at this wedding and then the cops are like taking down the car like plates outside, right? Like they are still like very much under surveillance. By like law enforcement, which we saw in The Sopranos, which, which also is happened checked in The, in the first season Yeah, of we're Sopranos. gonna talk about that next week. Anyway, in the second movie, they have a senator at the party. Like, like the idea is is that they have like come up in the world. It's very, and then like in the third one, it's about religion, and so it's very interesting, like seeing like the different places of power they're at, like in these in these different films from the beginning sequence. Yeah, I like thinking more about how, with which is what you're saying, how these different opening scenes like communicate something about their position and like how they want to be seen in the world, how they are seen in the world. But I also loved that they just continued to like escalate. So it's like you get, it's a crazy party in the first one, but by the second one, you're like, I mean, get a grip guys. We know you're rich and powerful. Like you do not have to have this big of a party. And then they're just throwing around millions of dollars in the third one. They can't be stopped. The parties must get bigger. (laughs) <laughs> Gotta say, though, there the, the cake in the first one, that's really the apex of whatever baked good they are serving <laughs> at any of those parties. And the only thing I could say to Tessa, because I was so envious of that cake, and I was so sad that that cake is not a part of my life from the first movie, <laughs> I said to Tessa, I bet it's covered with fondant. <laughs> you were so like bad because uh because the baker talks to him right like he yeah. comes to pay his respects and like he had done something for the baker and the baker's like just wait till you see the cake i baked your daughter i gotta tell you between watching these movies and the sopranos i would i would i might kill a person for 
for some good cake or cannoli or both. I mean, like, come on. <laughs> There's some good food in food is very important in these films, too, I yeah. think. For there's a lot of people making food and yeah. So Tessa, I know that you have a very important question. I do. About this first movie. I do. So the other big actor in this is obviously Al Pacino, who I did not recognize for the first quarter of this film because I had never seen him as a young actor. I have only seen him as an older actor because I was not born in the seventies. <laughs> Was Al Pacino hot when he was young? I like think, I think he was. I had yeah, that experience like, I was like, as Damn. well. Because I was grumpy when I started The Godfather Part 1, I was like, grump, grump, grump. I'm about to watch a three-hour movie, and there's not even any hot people in it. I can't believe this even exists. And then at the end of the movie, I was like, well, I would like to amend <laughs> my previous complaint. <laughs> <laughs> because apparently Al Pacino is hot. <laughs> Yes. Was it last year? Yes, so we did. I, I just think it's really great that for Tessa and me that we had we watched two movies last year with with a very attractive character named Apollonia. Yeah, that was so. very funny because like they were like, "What's her name?" and her father's like Apollonia, and I'm like, "Of course it's Apollonia. You have to like watch out <laughs> for those hot girls named Apollonia." <laughs> so common. By the way, so. <laughs> Uh, Al Pacino eventually wins an Oscar for Scent of a Woman, which, come on. That is the, you can point to that and go, okay, that's, I don't know if there were makeup Oscars before then, but that was a body of work Oscar. That was for Mm -hmm. The Godfather 1, 2, and maybe a little bit of 3. It wasn't for Scent of a Woman, that's for sure. What do we think about Al Pacino's performance in this film as Michael Corleone? I think that I really love his, like his performance really starts to hit for me in part two. Um, But that's the type of thing where I know the next time I watch the Godfather part one, I'm going to be so keyed into that character right from the very beginning. I think that's, and and I'm hearing it and, you know, having seen these movies once already, I think it's really hitting for me. Again, this movie is a completely different thing without the other movie after it. Mm-hmm. You know, when you talk about the meaning, like even if you haven't watched it again yet, you it's hard not to think about The Godfather without thinking about things that happen in The Godfather too. And especially like, watching them the way we did, this mm-hmm. is a saga. These are not separate movies for sure. me. Really. No, they are not. Like I have to go through and... When I'm thinking about scenes, I have to like really take my time to think about what movie did that happen in? Right. Unless Al Pacino is old, and then I know. (laughs) Well, Coppola does want you to think of, and this reminds me of our discussion of The Phantom Menace. This isn't a trilogy. It's a duology with another movie attached to it. A coda, Whereas George, <laughs> yes, As it were. Yeah, George Lucas did it oppositely, we argued earlier. The Phantom Menace is a separate movie from the duology that is episodes two and three. Coppola's done here the, the other way around. Mm. One and two is a movie, and then three, or one and two are a duology, and number three is meant to be a coda. So uh, that's invited. But I think talking about Michael... As you noted, Tessa, the best things to really talk about in this movie 
are the 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 biblical things. I, I when I teaching British literature to a bunch of people who aren't white, what I would say was, you don't have to be Christian to read British literature. You don't. You don't. Nobody should tell you that. I don't know that anybody would, but but you have to understand that most of it is written with the idea in mind that you have a a whatever the preacher in front of you would tell you is the history of Christianity. So you could recognize it in the literature. So you don't have to be, but it helps. You certainly don't have to be Christian to understand what's happening in The Godfather, but it helps. <laughs> because we are talking about a very... There's a lot of biblical things that happen in this, but there is one over all the others. I mean, I think so. Do yeah. I mean, Michael is the prodigal son in many ways. And I mean, you can you can tell this from like the very beginning of the film where Michael is talking to Kay, who is his white girlfriend that he brings to uh, his his wasp girlfriend, I should say, who he brings to, which, again, didn't realize it was Diane Keaton until halfway through the film. So he brings her to this wedding, where, which is very Italian, and he's trying to explain to her that he doesn't want to be part of his family. He explains to her how dangerous his father is, right? The offer he couldn't refuse and, you know, all of that stuff. But he says, you know, I'm not like my family. I'm never going to be like my family. But it's very clear that he's his father's favorite from the very beginning, even before he shows up, because when they all gather around to take the family picture, his father breaks it up and says, no, we're not taking a picture until Michael gets here. And so there is this very like this big sense that he is his father's favorite, but he is desperate to break away from the family. He joins the army, right? He becomes a war hero. He leaves the family. And it is this contrast between that and then his eventual getting back into the business. And when he does get back into the mob, he's clearly better at it than any of his siblings. And, you know, his siblings are the ones that have stayed. Right. So there is very much. And, and this bleeds over into the second film with uh, Fredo's character. But there is this idea that, like, the, they are the ones who stayed loyal. They're the ones who did the work. But he's the one who comes back. And his father is like, yes, you're taking over because you're my favorite. And so it, it is a very interesting storyline, I think, to comp- to kind of map those two things together. I wonder if and this really is not related to the biblical stuff, so I apologize. But I wonder if Michael is the best at it because he didn't grow up in it, because he can see the business clearly. Or I wonder if he was Vito's favorite because it was clear that he didn't want to be there. Or if it's some combination of those things that like makes Michael the chosen one, you know, like especially because in the in the later films, Michael hasn't really fixed this issue of like how to keep people in the family and have them be successful at this business. Like that continues to be an issue. So I just, I just have, I'm just curious about how this all shook out for him. Well, doesn't Vito later on when Michael takes over officially, but Vito steps down right to be his like counselor, Mm -hmm. his, um, he says, doesn't he tell Michael, like, this isn't what I wanted for you. Like I was actually hoping like that you wouldn't, like, I'm happy that you're here, but I wasn't, I, I didn't actually want you to be here. Like, I, I thought maybe you would go and do something else, which is very interesting considering the fact that all his other children were very clearly, like, groomed to be part of the family. Like, I mean, he adopted a kid, Tom. 
to raise him to be a lawyer, right? And so it, it is very interesting to me that like he wanted Michael to get away, but he also wanted Michael and to be this, close. Is this just like a parenting failure, or can you not be a successful like mob leader if you are close and care about these people? I just want to say that I had a moment. When you reminded me that Tom was basically adopted, I didn't yeah. think. I don't think. So you I know actually Yellowstone. <laughs> you know Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it adopted, not officially, but unlike that, in Yellowstone, Kevin Costner's character officially adopts the kid, Jamie. Oh right, I forgot and about gets that. him to become a lawyer. Yeah, that's a Godfather thing. Yeah. Yeah, because like they talk about how Tom isn't actually Italian, even though he like speaks Italian. I think he says I'm German Irish actually, or something like that. that. But the guy he tells that to, he's like, that doesn't help. Yeah, (laughs) but he he says that like he was a street kid that Vito found and like took care, basically took him in. But the idea was he was never going to leave that family, and neither was Sonny, and neither was Fredo. Right, like they were all going to be part of this family forever. This this kind of goes to tradition. It's a lot of different traditions. And, you know, they're trying to look at it through the Italian tra- tradition. But if you're looking at it more from the Anglo-American tradition, they're trying to operate next to or within or adjacent to. Oldest child is family business. Right. Second son, I don't know, become a preacher or something. <laughs> got, a, got a girl? Well, I mean, have her marry somebody important, I guess. And then the last kid can do fuck all whatever, right? I guess, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, I mean it's he, yeah, kind of emulating son, that as well. So that that also kind of feeds into both the biblical stuff and the stuff that we've been talking about as well. It is interesting to me that the thing that gets him to come back, though, is his father being shot. Mm-hmm. Like, he's very anti this whole thing, but as soon as his father gets shot, he's immediately not only back... But he's immediately, it's like almost like a turn where he's just like, no, like I will do whatever. I will kill someone in cold blood, you know, to make this, like to avenge him or make this stop or whatever. It's very much like he doesn't even really have to think about it, which does beg the question of, I mean, it brings up this idea of family again, right? Like, is he doing this because his father is his family and he sees the business as being inextricably a part of that or does he do it because he realizes that his brother is incapable of really understanding what needs to be done because Sonny is not a good mob boss (laughs) like (laughs) I find it like impossible to even try to guess what Michael cares about because By the third movie, you know and you understand that he cares about having this legitimate business and he cares about his daughter. But does he? Because not not as a verb. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really interesting that uh, you don't really know a lot about what's going on in Michael's head. We can guess. We can we can reason it out. But, you know, it's different from Sonny. You know what he's thinking. And and Fredo is purposely put off for the next movie. I mean, he's just planted and sent away. We'll get to him in the next movie. <laughs> but and and I and I want to pivot to the next movie here in a minute. But before, I, I do want to talk about Sonny a little bit more. And since he only has a very brief appearance in the next movie that he made as much money for 
as he did for this entire movie. Mr. Khan. Anyway, I think about this question a lot. And I think I would be thinking about it even if we weren't watching The Sopranos. Which, to borrow a, a Western idiom, like Western films, an idiom. The, the mob in The Sopranos is the gang who couldn't shoot straight. And, and so I think about the mob as a comedy of errors often. And I, I find myself asking the question, is anybody good at this? Is organized crime something you can be good at? Or are these people just not? Because, as you very rightly asked, Tessa, why, the, why would you marry a mobster's daughter and think I could hit her and that I would know. work? Like, as soon as he started, like, being mean to her, like, halfway through the film, like, telling her to shut up in front of her brothers, I was like, it feels like you really want to die. Like, I feel like if you're... I'm not saying anybody mm-hmm. should hit their wives or, like, no matter who their wives are. I'm just saying, like, it feels really suicidal to be abusive to a mob boss's daughter. Ultimately, they just end up using his abuse of Connie to kill one of the other men in the family. Like, I don't really actually think that anybody cares that Connie's being abused. It's just like... Well, Sonny did. I think it's because Sonny is offended because Sonny's the one who's supposed to be protecting them, which is neither here nor there, I guess, ultimately. I don't know. The The thing I really get stuck on in this movie is that... They let this abuse go on so that they can trap Sonny and kill him. Yeah. Which is shitty. And then when Connie is screaming her head off about it, it's like, I don't know how long the scene is. It's not a very long scene, but her face is not in it for more than 10 seconds. And it really made me mad. (laughs) Yeah, I I will say that the... Talia Shire is a great actor and she is criminally mm-hmm. underused in all three of these films. She has a little bit more to do in the third yeah. one. And we, cause we follow her from the car. We're following her from the back. Uh, the camera's mostly on Michael's face while she's saying like, you killed my husband. And it's like, yeah, I get it because he's the one calling the shots. But these movies are ultimately like about men. So that's why I'm not surprised that someone who planned on beating his wife married into this family, because this is a family where it's okay to do that as long as you're servicing the business. I think it's interesting that Sylvester Stallone may have treated her better. Oh, she is much better. She is a much better character. She has more to do in Rocky than she does in, in these films, even though she's probably. It's hard to believe it's the same person. Yeah, I know. Although I recognized her a lot faster than I recognized Diane Keaton, who also doesn't have a lot to do in this film. Mm -hmm. She will have more to do in the next two films. I did want to ask before we moved on just really quickly, what do we think about... Because I think that the fact that Michael is married to two different people in this film, Apollonia first, who is fridged, and then Kay. Just so fast. So fast. Which apparently in the, in the first uh, cuts of the film, like they did actually film a storyline in which Michael does kill the bodyguard who betrayed them. Um, and in fact, it was on some promotional material that uh, Al Pacino is holding a shotgun and I he never holds a shotgun in too. this film. The movie would have just been too long, I guess. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so, but it is interesting, this idea, because they ship him off to Italy after he does the famous, like, pulling the gun out of the, from behind the toilet and shooting them. 
scene. Toilet gun. Toilet gun. He goes, you know, they ship him back to Italy. And what's interesting is that his stint in Italy makes him more, I don't want to use the word conservative. He it makes it more traditional, right? Mm-hmm. He Because he can't speak Italian very well at the beginning of the film, which they do on purpose. But by the time you get to the end of the film, he's speaking it very fluently because of his time in Italy. And it is interesting to me that he marries Apollonia, who is very traditional, right? Like they get married in a very traditional ceremony, they like, do say like tradition, one more time. Topol will come through the wall. <laughs> <laughs> he like doesn't even hang out with her without her family present, right? Which is so yeah. distinctly it's... like not American in this time period. Well, in any time period, but right, yeah. Most of their interactions with each other before they get married are like them like communicating with their eyes over a table, right? <laughs> like like her like touching the necklace that he gave her, and you know all of that stuff. And then you have Kay who is his, she's with him at the beginning of the movie. He leaves, gets married to Apollonia. Apollonia dies, and then he comes back and scoops Kay yeah. off the street she is, and basically is like, we're getting married. She is the <laughs> one who tried to get away. She did try to get away, I think. <laughs> I love in the third movie, she finally brings up that he got, like, did she know? Did anybody ever? Oh, she did. Like, surely she knew. No, I just think it's funny, but nobody acknowledges it all the way up to like almost the end of the third movie. It's like, ha ha. So my question is, does he really love Kay? And was his marriage to Apollonia sort of a bid to like get back into that like tradition and that family? And like, she's going to understand like her place in this family and like, what is expected of her because she's definitely more of a domestic like type of type of wife or is it that he really wants to be white and so that's why he's interested in Kay or does he really love Kay and he was just trying to like find someone that was more acceptable to his family for a while I just I find these relationships to be very interesting in what they say about Michael as a character I did feel when he comes back and gets Kay that it's like a like a checklist to being the Don, kind of. Like, now I'm back. I need to be in charge. I need to have children. I know this woman from my time here before. I can probably convince her <laughs> to get back together with me. I just, I, I have a hard time. Well, I would have a hard time buying that anybody in these movies really loved anybody except for maybe Mary. But I just have a hard time that, like, he really understood, like, the meaning of what it would be to be in partnership with a woman who had her own thoughts and feelings and emotions. Okay. And do you think that's true because that's what Mario Puzo and Francis Ford Coppola want us to know about those character, this character, or is it because they're unable to write a character who, I mean, that's like, I, I, well, I mean, I, but that's the question I want to ask. Cause I think, I think, I think you both are right about what you're talking about here, especially what you just said, Melissa. But I wonder if that's even purposeful. Like, I don't can they just know not enough, do it any other way? Yeah, I don't know enough we about them. Yeah. Um, I don't know anything about the original source material. I don't know that much about Francis Ford Coppola as a filmmaker. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if they just didn't know how. <laughs> and they were like, well, this was, this is fine. This works but for the character. But it does fit Let's into <laughs> the way Michael was raised, though. Because if you look at his mother... Mm-hmm. His mother is more like Apollonia. Mm-hmm. Like she's she's mm-hmm. very uh, Catholic and very traditional and very much like 
her, you know, she almost doesn't have any presence in the film. She's just sort of there to support Vito, right? As a as a person. It's, and it's so my con- question is, I wonder if he was expecting Kay to be like that or if he even knows what marriages could look like outside I wonder of that. if subconsciously like he thought that a partnership would with Kay would help him in his path to legitimizing the family because she knew him back when when he wanted to leave the family she wanted to be with him when this was not going to be their life and she continues to remind him of that and I think that's ultimately what leads to their downfall but instead of remembering that this is what he loved about and now I'm just projecting onto this character but instead of remembering like what he loved about her and what he thought would be the benefit of their partnership, he just steals their children and slams the door in their face. And that is the first thing he says to her when they meet again is the Corleone Corleone business is going to be legitimate in five mm-hmm. years. Right. Which it isn't. Mm-hmm. But like that's that is clearly what he mm-hmm. wants and what he's going to tell her to get her on board with this. Mm-hmm. I am. Very suspicious, though, of any time we are supposed to interpret something about a character based on a lack of something. Well, and when we it's in a three-hour movie, so, you should just be telling me all the things I need to know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but that's the thing. When you when you communicate the something through the lack of it, mm-hmm. I am immediately suspicious. I was having a conversation with our producer, Ryan, about another piece of pop culture. And Ryan said it best. This is either very stupid or very nuanced. (laughs) And I think that's what's happening here. They either fundamentally don't know how to write this romantic tension, this Oh, no, this is not romantic. There are no romantic storylines in any of these films, except for, like you said, Mary, perhaps, in the last film. And even then, they make you feel weird about it. Yeah. Can I just want (laughs) people to kiss, please? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't think Coppola, this movie. I really don't think Coppola knows how to write romance. Right. And I don't think that's what this is. Yeah. And I don't think that they anticipate. Well, th- this is me like projecting and also kind of being an asshole. But I just don't think that they cared, you know, about how we were yeah. going to interpret this romance. Because the only thing that matters is what these men do. So it's very much about Italian masculinity more than it is anything else. Like it's very much about like, are we inside? Are we outside? Like how much emotion can we show? Are we showing too much emotion? What happens when someone disrespects you? Right. That's from the very beginning. And so it's, it's more about that than it is about any of the female characters or sorry, any of the woman characters or anything that may or may not be romantic between these women and Michael. All right. This is a really good pivot point, so I'm going to take it. Yes. Because The Godfather Part 2 is the film that is most profoundly uninterested in romance. It's just not there mm-hmm. for the most part. Uh, in fact, this this movie, so Godfather 2 comes out a couple of years later. It, again, wins Best Picture and Adapted Screenplay. Coppola picks up the award for Best Director. And Robert De Niro wins for Best Supporting Actor, which means two actors have won for playing the same character, Vito Corleone, which is pretty neat. Pretty cool. It would be like if Patrick Stewart and James McAvoy had both won Oscars for Professor X. And yes, I had a connection to the X-Men in this movie before you did. (laughs) Anyway, The Godfather 2 is 
split into two parts. We are tracking Michael as he relocates to Nevada and uh, ends up going to Miami and Cuba as well. And then the second half of the movie intercut is a flashback in which Robert De Niro takes over for Marlon Brando in the role of Vito. And we see him as he, in a flashier flashback with a third incarnation as a child, but then mostly uh, rising in New York City. But the question I wanted to lead with here, which is kind of goes back to the, the issue of, of romance, which this movie is profoundly uninterested in. How badly do both of you think that Puzo and Coppola want us to be thinking about whether or not Michael is a bad person? Is that the central conflict of this movie or not? I can't imagine that it is because I did not think about it one time. Is he a bad person then? Or does it matter? I don't think it matters. And like, because from the perspective of what Michael's doing and why he's doing it, I'm with him because people came after your family. In the grand scheme of things, maybe do not be a crime boss. But I'm watching a movie. (laughs) That seems like a very niche lesson. I don't know that many people need to learn. (laughs) I mean, I think the more important question is, is Michael a self-aware person? Does he have any ability to connect his actions with the consequences of his actions? Well, the third movie really gets us to to look back and see whether or not Michael was ever going to succeed in this role. And I guess what I'm trying to to think about, if if the question about whether he's a good person or not is a non-issue, fine, is this movie trying to have us compare Michael and Vito? Oh, yes, of course it is. But... In what, through what lens? I think through a lot of lenses. We're supposed to compare them as parents, as fathers. I think we're supposed to compare them in their roles as the godfather. And I think we're supposed to compare them as outsiders. Because Vito is very much an outsider. Like he is in this time period where Italian Americans were very discriminated against and looked down upon. And you can see that he lives in this very insular community, right? Um, of just all Italians in this in this neighborhood. And in many ways, he starts the family, the business, so he can protect his neighborhood and his children who are being like under they're kind of under attack, right, by these other families. So he starts doing this to kind of defend you know, that as well. But what we end up seeing over the course of that storyline is that that this brings, this is a community building thing, that this brings him and his family and his community closer together. And he embodies that role of godfather, which, I mean, godfather is like a patriarchal thing, but it's a, a thing that's supposed to imply that he's a benefactor, right, of of this particular community, You compare that to what happens with Michael in this film, who loses his family because of the business. He loses friends, right? He has to kill his own brother, and he's alone at the end of the film, which is very different than where Vito is. And so I think we are supposed to compare these two people. And I think the question the movie is asking us is, is this because Michael is not as good at this role as Vito, or is it because times have changed and what Michael's family needs is different than what Vito's family needs? Like 
does this still work in the 50s when you have, you know, congressional committees, you know, looking into this stuff when you have, you know, senators who are kind of on their bankroll, but are still really discriminatory when you're so big that everyone's looking at you versus when it was just this neighborhood thing, you know, in the early 20th century when they didn't have like the surveillance technology or like task force and they didn't really care what the Italians did as long as they stayed in their neighborhoods. Right. So like it, it, is a really interesting question I think this film has. Um, But yeah, I think we are supposed to definitely compare the two. When I'm thinking about comparing them, I'm just going back to what Sam said earlier, which is, is it even possible to be successful at this? Is there any success as The Godfather? Or does it always end up with you dead or alone? I think that Scorsese keeps chasing this. This is actually where I think the Scorsese discussion is appropriate because I think he sees that question very early and then keeps trying to answer it over and over and over again. And so that's a whole nother episode of a podcast, but it is very interesting. And the only possible way that I can think of having watched all of Scorsese having seen The Sopranos, having seen these movies, seeing many of the things that operate outside of this one idiom, is to say that if everybody leaves you alone, if it is a closed system, then there are people who can regulate, right? And that's what, that's what we start to see with Vito in this movie and then retroactively back to the beginning of the first movie is, as you point out, before the congressional committees and the surveillance methods and and then the competing interests, which we see more in three, it was possible for one person with a very specific personality type to do this in a closed system. But you remember, even in the first movie, drugs are going to ruin everything. Right, that whether, was the other thing Whether that comes Vito up. says yes or no, that conversation didn't matter. It was over as soon as that happened because it was no longer, it couldn't be a closed system. And, and so, I mean, yeah, it, can anybody be successful doing this? Yes, but that answer is an extremely narrow yes. And like, that's not a good right. movie. Right. So... We'll never get to see it. <laughs> right. It's only interesting so far as we know that the possibility is technically there mm-hmm. under very constrained circumstances, which is what the other half of The Godfather is showing us, I think. Right. And I think uh, the other part Godfather of this, part two, I mean. Yes. I think the other part, too, is that... And I, I'm saying this as someone who did not grow up in a community like this, but has a family that is very much from a community like this is that not Italian, Czech, um, and it was Midwest and not New York City, but, like, this idea that, like, you're not really white, but you're not anything else, and you don't speak English, and you have these really kitschy, weird customs, and so we're just going to put you in these neighborhoods and let you sort yourselves out. And that happened in to my family, in the history of my family in northern Iowa, and in a lot of ways they did make their own laws because nobody else was going to, like, take care of them or you know, treat them in any sort of way. So they made their own systems to work. 
it seems like that's what Vito is trying to do in at least the original incarnation of this, right? He's trying to take care of people. He's try he like helps the lady, uh, the landlord whose lady who's going to kick her out of her house. You know, he like helps her, right? Like he's trying to like actually do this for the good of the community. But when it becomes about money and when it becomes about power, then it's it, then it starts to evolve in ways in which it could only end in tragedy, right? Um, so it is It is a very interesting, it is an interesting contrast, I think, between these two storylines. I also think De Niro is doing an excellent job of convincing me that you can actually just recast characters. You don't have to de-age them. You can actually just recast them and have somebody else play the role because I think he does a really great job playing this character. They make Robert De Niro seem so lanky in this movie. I had to like yeah, Google, they do. I had to like Google his like height and what he looks like as an old man because my brain was like not computing that this was a recognizable person to me. <laughs> also, <laughs> kind of hot. <laughs> yes, also also kind of hot. Although, ironic, you know, you talk about de aging, and I immediately jumped to Star Wars once again. But let's recall that De Niro himself. Was de-aged by Scorsese. Oh my god, I hated that movie. That's the only one that I've seen. The I only mob Scorsese movie it. I've seen. Not it's, worth it. It's not the. It's not. It, that is a shame. That's not the same thing. I will say that I also noted on here that Vito coming back to Cor- Corleone, which again, this also establishes that like they took the 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 person the person at um, Ellis Island gave him the name of his city, which is really funny and weird. Um, but true, very accurate. Mm-hmm. I loved him coming back and killing the mafia boss, not because of like anything that the mafia boss did about killing his father or his brother. Like that's fine. That's like vendetta. Like I get it. But because that's just you killed, business. My, but you killed my mom. Like he actually tells him that he's like he killed my mom you and like can't kill moms. Yeah, I can't let that go. And it, it was giving me real like X Men first class when Magneto because Magneto says something very similar to the guy the not the guy from the concentration camp where he's like it doesn't matter that you like tortured me and stuff like that just made me stronger but you killed my mom and I can't let that go. Three Ten to Yuma also has the great line even bad men love their mamas uh, which is great too. And then they just so there's a lot of those things that their wives are also mothers to their yes. own children. Not their mothers. I don't their get it. <laughs> <laughs> Disconnects. Well, and and by the way, I think that's something that we are also invited to look at in organized crime movies is that compartmentalization that disconnects. How can you live with yourself if you connect all of these things? And so, I mean, I'm not, I don't think that that's necessarily tied to some of the crime and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, they definitely don't see their wives as mothers but they in the see same way their, that they see their yeah, own mothers. But they sometimes see their sons as themselves, which is why it's so important for them to go into the family business or figure out how to make their own way. And it's like, okay, and now your son has this mother that is your wife and you have treated her badly. What do you think? <laughs> like, I just think it's funny that in the first movie, the guy at the beginning who like is reading his little speech to Vito off of the like the cards, like when he says like, and may your first child be a masculine child, we're supposed to laugh at it. It's supposed to be funny, like because it's just this weird guy like reading his speech off of the cards. But then in the second movie, like from the very beginning, Michael is like, does it feel like a boy? Does it feel like a boy? And like, it is a little like odd that like it's almost like he's gotten more... 
he's almost gotten more traditional and conservative than even his father was in some ways. Mm -hmm. What do we think about Diane Keaton's role in this? She's got a lot more to do. And of course she not only leaves him, but tells him that she's had an abortion uh, because she was, isn't going to bring another man into this toxic. What, what does she call it? This toxic Sicilian thing. Holy. She's not part of their Catholic system. Batman. (laughs) <laughs> that is something we are very specifically told by by invoking that word mm-hmm. and that action she is not just she is negating everything including their supposed belief system right right it, it it's it's that is it's huge it's huge you know some people say this movie is better than the first one I will at least say that on this first experience through, I liked it much more. Why? Other than you weren't having a bad day. I was in a better mood. Um, but mm. also, it there's so much happening here between all of the characters and then all of the plot machinations that it is just much easier for me to follow once I've already spent three hours trying to follow it. So I was just much more comfortable right off the bat. Did you at all find yourself lost in the plot of this one? I did. I did. I found myself lost in like in the in the actual like mob plot mm-hmm. of all of these movies. I kept pausing and being like, "Okay. Who's doing what with whose money? Where?" We like or do not like this because what's weird is is that I also got lost in all these movies, but these movies actually didn't really make me care. Doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter if you're following it it or not. But and that's probably another one of the things too is because when I'm watching the first one, I don't know yet if it matters or not, and then by the second one, I'm Ah. like, well, someone will be dead, and I will figure out why it mattered. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I will. I will. As long as I kind of know who the characters are, like that's that's all that really matters. Because uh, I don't think it's actually interested in the plot. Like, I think it's more interested yeah. in what the plot makes the characters do and what it makes them feel. Well, I think that goes back to your your thing about Diane Keaton. Is that there are, I mean, of course, Brando. Brando was supposed to show up for that last scene along with, um, with James Caan, but doesn't because he couldn't agree on the money, allegedly. I guess that this was at the point where you never know with Brando. But I I kind of have a working theory. Godfather 3 might not be as good as the first two. I'll grant you that. But I think a lot of people have warmer feelings about the second one than the first one for all these reasons we're articulating mm-hmm. now. We know, we get it. We understand the system. The plot doesn't matter it's about these characters and how they react to things in each other. And that first impression of the first movie, not knowing what counts, what matters the most. You know, so the impression of the second movie, because you do know, is a much more favorable impression. I suspect there isn't that much difference quality-wise between the first and the second movie. But I think people who say they like the second one better are reacting in this this way that uh, Melissa, especially you described. Frankly, I don't think number three is far down. 
But well, that's a discussion for a few minutes from now. I think, too, just, just to respond to that, is that this is a much more complex movie when it comes mm-hmm. to Michael as a character, specifically. Because Michael's a more complex character than Vita. In this movie, yeah. he we Like you said, uh, Melissa, it's hard to know what he's feeling in the first movie. It's much easier, I think, to know like what he's what he's thinking, what he's feeling in this film. But also the first one is just such a um, textbook rise to power film. And this one is very much more interested in like, what do you do to keep power? Can you keep power? Like, you know, what are the choices you have to make? And I think that that's much more compelling for some people than just the, Mm -hmm. okay, yeah, this guy's going to become the new Godfather, which is like the first arc of the film. Although that does make beg the question, who is the godfather? Is it Michael? Is it Vito? Is it both? The friends we Who's made the along the way. Godfather. Yes. <laughs> I was going to go for a three men and a baby joke, but I really like yours better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the the titular godfather, it's just a like it changes based on whoever needs the godfather and their perception of who's in charge. The Godfather is always there when you need him. <laughs> you hope. Is it? But is Vito the Godfather by the end of the movie? Really? Well, that's my question because when I watched the first movie, I because I I going into it was like, well, Marlon Brando's character is the Godfather. Like he's the one that's always quoted. Like you know. But then when I finished the first movie, I was like, oh, Michael's actually the Godfather. Mm-hmm. Like it's about Michael. And then the second movie, I was like, well, I still think it's about Michael, but you get all like a lot of emphasis is also put on Vito's rise to power. So that that's why I asked the question. It's hard not to think of Marlon Brando as the Godfather. Yeah. Well, yeah. And if the, if the Godfather um, in title is referring to Vito, then all of these movies are about the specter he left on this family. And I think that's right. Which is very true because right. uh, Michael does bring up Vito a lot mm-hmm. in all of these films. I, yeah. yeah. Because he's trying to be Vito, but he can't be because that role and position doesn't really exist anymore. Right. I, you know, it's really interesting. Again, skipping ahead a little bit, we end. Tessa, you bring up a really good point about the difference between Michael at the end of the first movie and Vito at the end of the second movie. That's it, right? Before we talk about that really quickly, to skip ahead again to the the last movie, we get that ending with Michael alone and old, which I think is supposed to be a contrast to Vito, who is old and isn't alone because the 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 child is there playing with him at mm-hmm. the end. Yeah, when he dies. And, yeah, and so you know it's it's very easy to see Vito as a better father. Than Michael and a better Godfather, which really I think the trilogy is about Michael, but Vito's the Godfather because it's all about Michael trying to fill those shoes to try to get out of Vito's mm-hmm. shadow. And he can't. But but the question is, is that because of things that Michael has done? Is it because the role of Godfather that Michael is trying to play fundamentally is different than the one Vito was trying to play. Like he cannot be his father because that Godfather is done. It can't exist anymore. Or is it both? Yes. Yeah. Changing times too. Don't forget. Right. Well, and that's the big thing I think is the time shift. Yeah. That that's the thing I keep coming back to is this idea that like fundamentally Vito is operating in a different paradigm than Michael is, but Michael is trying to operate the same way that Vito is, but he can't. And so, like, that's 
that I think is a really interesting tension. I'm going to do it. Now, this was the first time you'd seen this movie, right? Godfather uh, 3? Yeah, yeah, here we go. This is... And you know, I I don't know anybody who's seen Godfather 3. That's actually a joke in it, Ted Lasso. He says, yeah. I don't think anyone's actually seen that movie. No. And it was funny when we were talking about doing this. Tessa, really quickly, do you remember why we were doing this episode? Because I don't. Is it because you hadn't seen Godfather Part 3 and well, I hadn't is, seen the other two? But I've, or I hadn't I've seen not, any of them? I haven't seen Lawrence of Arabia and we're not doing an episode on that. I don't remember what the inciting incident okay. was. Somehow you talked me into two weeks devoted to the mob. I did. So. <laughs> I did. Well, <laughs> actually, no, I do remember. It was, we were going to start off Mobile 2.0 with a, with a big bang, with like a right. big pop culture thing. But then I found out that most of our, most of our, our regulars have not seen the Godfather three either. That's right. So, so I think we are single handedly going to spike Godfather 3 on Letterboxd in the next little while here. So I'm excited. But, okay, there's a lot to talk about in this movie. And we could talk about the different versions of the movie. We could talk about the the plot of the movie. We could talk, but we're not going to until we talk about what's really been lost in translation here. <laughs> Somewhere, there are people... Who are saying that Sofia Coppola was not good in this movie? They are they are not beguiled. Oh my god! Keep going. Marie Antoinette Virgin Suicides. <laughs> Bling ring done. <laughs> I have nothing else for that. I worked in as many as I could. Sofia Coppola isn't that bad in this movie. No, and I think Come what on. I really hated was I was reading about this, and I think. The way it was put in the article I was reading was Sophia, like this film was like pretty well received, although not as well as the first two. But the big criticisms were Sophia Coppola, especially compared to Al Pacino's performance. And I'm like, okay, that's not fair. Al Pacino has played this character twice before to critical acclaim. And these movies are much more to do in this film. Than Sofia Coppola, so I don't think that that's like a fair comparison. I don't think she's, I don't think she's bad in this film at all. I think she's given a very specific thing to do, and I think she does that thing. I think the point of comparison is Jamie Lynn Sigler on The Sopranos. Yeah, I mean, don't compare to Al Pacino. Don't compare no, it was anybody just such a weird, to Al Pacino because they were like that was the one that and the convoluted storyline were the two things that came under well uh, criticism. I agree with that, and you can agree with that. It's just. It, it was just a very strange way of like, why would you compare those two characters? I or performances even. That's I don't the even ultimate understand. Neg. <laughs> well, you're not as good of an actor as Al Pacino, but you're not bad. <laughs> what? <laughs> also, this character what? this character is supposed to be like the hot what did you say? They made me come to Sunday school. Yeah. Like character. This is like, like I don't wanna be here. This sucks. I'm going to go flirt with that dude. I mean, her character even... She nails it. Her character even asks the question, what am I doing here? And that was yeah. the only part of the performance where I was like, oh, I can see why people didn't like this because this is not... This is... the, the people. I am 
assuming a lot. But <laughs> the people who liked the two first Godfather films and then, then saw this third one did not want to see a movie about this character. And so That's when true. she was there and she was a very pretty young woman and she was literally on screen saying, I don't understand what I'm doing here. I'm sure that they were like, yeah, we don't either. Bad movie. I agree with you because I do, once again, because the hype around this movie is usually a lot of men who talk about films. I have not heard a lot about women talking about the, these this particular trilogy. I could be wrong. If you know of any female critics, sorry, if you know of any women critics who have talked about this movie, I would love to read them. But I, I do get the feeling that somebody's like, women? What are they doing in my Godfather yeah. movie? Hashtag not my Godfather. What are you doing which, there? Which it's she's not called not, Godmother. Which she's she's not even doing that Disney. much. Is the thing like I I kind of wanted them to push the gas a little harder on this character and like have her do a little bit more than she actually does. That's still first cousin stuff, Tessa. Oh God, not that sort of thing. I wanted to see more of her <laughs> and like her relationship to the family, right? But. So that's just me, though. Okay. I also wanted to see more Diane Keaton, who actually has some more to do here, okay. too. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not done with Sophia Coppola. <laughs> do not start talking about Diane Keaton. <laughs> do not erase Sophia Coppola. I would never. Speaking of which, Winona Ryder was supposed to play this character. And as the story goes, had just done back to back to back movies. So her boyfriend, Mr. Depp. Mr. Johnny Depp, best boyfriend ever, you guys, called the set and said, she can't show up, man. She's too tired. He and called so, her in to her job? That's yes. that's that's what, yeah. Ugh, yeah that's the story. story. I don't know if it's true. Oh, it sounds Who's true. Who's to say? I mean, it does. <laughs> it does, rather. Um... <laughs> You know, but but here's the thing, though. Try to imagine, try to imagine the girl from Beetlejuice, the girl from Heather's, that kid, as Mary Corleone. I know a lot of people try to say, well, Sofia Coppola was bad because she's not Winona Ryder. And I'm looking at you dead in the face and saying, Winona Ryder would have stunk at this role. I actually can't imagine her as this character. I really can't. And that's nothing against Winona Ryder, who is a wonderful actor. Reality bites Winona Ryder doing this? No. She doesn't have the right sensuality I, guess I wanted to say the... something like that as well I yeah. would have I think I would yeah. have found it and this is just this is real life context also because I have watched a bunch of Winona Ryder movies and now she is an adult that I see in the public eye but I just have a hard time believing that I would see a young Winona Ryder and believe that that person wanted the things that Mary Corleone wants well that's you know, I think this is really fascinating. And, you know, we talk a lot about this isn't really a case of colorblind casting, except it, 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 it gets very close to being that. We know that Kay leaves Michael. And we know that these children have been raised in some measure separate from the family. Like, they are part of the family, but they are also having lives without it. I was relieved which to find that. Why, right, like when the which is why... Right. Which is why his starts, son... Yeah. He, his son doesn't want to be a part of the family. And that is one of the big parts of the plot. But 
if you have Mary cast by Sofia Coppola, you see her as a kid who favors the Corleone family physically. You have Winona Ryder. She does not favor them. She fa- she must favor all the K family that we never <laughs> saw. And so it's a lot. It would be a lot harder to see Winona Ryder and see her as part of the Corleone family, just because it would be so easy for you to think, uh huh, uh huh, based on how you, like your brain would do it for you. It would fill in the blanks and say, well, she looks like more like K. She must be somebody from outside the family, and so. It's going to play completely differently. Her falling in love with Andy Garcia's character. And I don't think it would work as well. I don't know. I, agree. I could be no, wrong. I, no, I completely agree with Me you. Me too. Absolutely. And again, that's nothing against Winona Ryder. I just don't think it would have worked. So, Can I talk about right. Diane Keaton and her golden suit now? Fine. If you want to <laughs> talk about, as long as we're all on board with the fact that Sofia Coppola got done dirty. She did. And, and by the way. Sophia Coppola got done dirty in Godfather 3 is what Bob whispers into Charlotte's ear at the end of Lost in Translation. <laughs> that's that's actually it. That's, that's what Bill canon. Murray's character says to Scarlett Johansson's character. She got done dirty. That was it. That was advice to live by. What do you want to say about Diane Keaton, Tessa? Okay, I have to say, first of all, when we're talking about hot people... Diane Keaton <laughs> is one of those rare people that I actually think gets hotter as she gets older. And... Like, I think she's actually hotter in this third movie than she is in the first two movies. But part of that is also because she's like, as a person, has like found her final form in her suits. And so her wearing that gold suit at the beginning of this film is like, I was just like, yes, like this person has found herself outside of this family (laughs) and she looks great. Um, But I also I actually really loved all the scenes with her and Al Pacino's character, which Like you said, Melissa, it did surprise me a little bit at first that he was like constantly trying to like talk to her and like renegotiate their marriage because it felt like it felt like the second movie, him closing the door in her face was supposed to be like, Mm -hmm. this is my the end of my relationship with you. But also I was like, he kept being like, you know, I've always loved you or you look great. I'm like, since when? Like, it doesn't feel like you did at all. Like in the first couple of films. But on the other hand, I loved the scene between the two of them in Italy where they actually like have it out and Mm -hmm. he, you know, is able to communicate with her probably for the first time since, you know, he took over the family that he didn't want this and he never expected things to be this way. And, you know, just the way that she's able to talk to him about her life and like how she's felt about all of it, I thought was some really good work for both of them. Yeah. We haven't talked a lot about. We've mentioned Sicily. We've mentioned that big segments of each film takes place in Sicily. But I think hearing what you just said reminded me to ask the question, what does Sicily? I mean, we talk about New York as a character, so let's talk about Sicily as a character. Uh, How, what what role does it have in, in these films? And you just got, I'll answer that too. I'll answer my own question. Hmm. It was, it was something you just said that really made me think about this, that Sicily is where Michael can be honest. We saw it with Apollonia in the first one. Maybe, maybe if that's (laughs) what we think. I, I almost wonder if he's not his most honest self when he is in Sicily 
And knowing what I know about, again, to invoke Topol, tradition, I, I would not be surprised to find out that's intentional. And so they, he is able to use his big person words and talk <laughs> with her because they're removed from, you know, those, those American locales. I also love what he says to her about Cicely when she's like, you know, why do you love this place so much? And he says it's because like all, all of these horrible things have happened to these people, like just constantly over and over again, bad things happen to these people, but they're still very optimistic. Like they're always looking like for the best in life and for things to get better, which I feel like is very antithetical to the attitude that the mob has and so it is really interesting to me that that is what he connects to back in Sicily. Like this idea that like, even though bad things have happened, you can still like have that optimism, which I think he's very much lost throughout the course of those, these three films. Melissa has her thinking I know, face it's, on. It's, it's, this is a very pensive face. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, yeah. And I'm not sure what to say or where to start. It's it's never stopped me before. Just, just dive in, see what happens. Well, uh, let me ask you this then, Melissa. So uh, we found out literally last night because I was doing a bad job of communicating, and also I didn't know until like two nights ago that we that there were two different versions of this film. Yes. I know you said there's multiple versions, but I didn't realize there were. And you watched the final director's cut, Allegedly. of Godfather Part Three. Allegedly, we watched Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone, which came out two years ago. Is that right? Okay, yeah. 2020, yeah. And I know that this version of the film that we watched, Al Pacino and Talia Shire both like it the best. Mm -hmm. But I don't, I haven't seen the original version. um, So I don't know. If there's a lot of differences, have and, either and neither you... is Melissa. If she saw yeah, the director's say, cut. Uh, have you looked at the differences? Uh, yeah. I basically what. So, question for you, Melissa. What's the first scene in the movie that you watched? The first scene in the movie that I watched was Michael talking to like the Vatican bank man. And him saying that, like, he trusted his friends with the money and it went bad. $700 million deficit. And that's, and that's you know, that's where they agree to the loan and everything? Or, well, that's or when, he, yeah. He so says to sell me the... Michael says to sell the land for $600 million, And in my little mind, I was like, math ain't mathin'. And then they go to the party and then they donate the $100 million, And I felt very cool and smart. Right. <laughs> Because I was like, I am following the hell out of this plot. <laughs> I believe you saw the same version we did. See, this is this is what I was about to say while you were thinking. I'm not sure that the original part three, excuse me, actually exists because I, I so. rented a movie on Amazon Prime that had a release date of 1990, but it was still called... The Godfather Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone. So I was like, did they just retitle this? But yeah, it seems like... Letterboxd doesn't have a good reference for it either because it only has The Godfather Part 3, 1990 listed. But if you look at the... Like, there's no entry in Letterboxd for Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone. 
But if you look at the reviews under the Godfather, the Godfather Part Three, there are reviews for Coda. Yeah. So it is very confusing. I wonder if I could get my four dollars back from Amazon Prime because I'm like, <laughs> you misrepresented what this movie was, and I could have watched this for free on Peacock. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think just after the New Year, though, because they weren't there when I watched the first two. I'm looking at. Uh, a a article on the internet that talks about the Godfather Coda opens with the scene from the Archbishop, a scene that appeared in the original around the forty minute mark. Well, I'll be darned. And so the <laughs> well, and so the big, so the big thing about there are two things that are important about this this new version of the film. And one of them is simple, throw in the title on it, because Coppola does not want you to see these as a trilogy. I literally have the file called the Godfather Trilogy. Our notes doc is called that. But that's not what Coppola wants. Coppola wants you to see a duology and a coda. And so he accomplishes that just by changing the name of the movie. Now, we'll get to the death of Michael Corleone part of the title here in a bit. But the second thing, actually, there's three things. Much like me, it was two things, but it's actually three. The second one is cutting some of Sofia Coppola's stuff. Boo earns. Three is clarifying the plot. As we've talked about, it may not really matter, but the complaint, again, lodged that wasn't Sofia Coppola related is that the plot's hard to follow. If you think about it, that beginning scene with the archbishop does make a lot more, Mm -hmm. uh, it it, it provides a lot more clarity. So like mission accomplished there too, I guess. I don't know. I haven't seen the original cut. I'm not sure that you can if you don't don't own the physical version of it. Yeah, I don't think. I'll have to talk to my my father and see if he has any Godfather VHSs in his collection. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I won't fault them for saying this is the best version and the best version ought to be available. This isn't George Lucas, for God's sake. Well, and it's nice. It's not Blade Runner either. You don't actually have to sift through 16 different versions to pick one. Figure out which one. I like that. Same with Metropolis, by the way, which I also had to sift through a lot of versions so I could write my review on Movie John. By the way, the thing about Blade Runner is, I and I think this is true about The Godfather 3 as well. Give me all the versions, clearly label Mm -hmm. them, and then let me pay for them. Why do you have to be this way? Right. It's called money. I have it. (laughs) Look it up. (laughs) You want it. Let me shut up and take my money. (laughs) Futurama meme. I think this movie is pretty weak for pacing issues. I, I... Again, when I say weak, I still think it's a very good movie. You I just enjoyed the hell out of it, didn't you? Yeah, I did. It's weaker than the other two is what I mean. And I think it's because of the pacing issues specifically in the movie. Like it does have some some odd moments in it. However, I do actually think that Andrew Garcia as Vincent is a very interesting His name is Andy. Sorry, Andy Garcia as Vincent. I think he's a very interesting character. Because you could, so even though we're not supposed to see this as a trilogy, there are obviously a lot of cyclical things happening in this film in terms of the first movie. You know, he's aging like his father was aging. He's looking to maybe turn 
turn this business, which has gone legitimate, but as he points out, is maybe not as legitimate. Uh, going legitimate is not perhaps as legitimate as he thought that it was. But, you know, he's aging out of this. He's looking maybe for a replacement. He's looking to try to f- salvage his relationship with his family. And the person, his own son doesn't want to take over, right? We've talked about this issue. Uh, and he's not like Michael from the first film. He's not going to come back the way that Michael did. But his he has like a a replacement son, I guess, a another son in Vincent. The interesting part to me is this idea of being illegitimate. The fact that Vincent is his brother's son, but everyone doesn't really see him that way. Like even like Joey Zah, Zaza, played by Joe. Uh, All I can think it was Josh, Zaza's pedals. Yeah. By Fat Tony, Joe Montaigne. Ma- Do- Joe Montaigne. I always know of him from Criminal Minds, but um, he... Like he says, like this person who says he's part of your family. Like there's just some very wait, wait, wait. what, what I I just what? realized. Are you having that... a Joe Montaigne realization yes. here? Yeah. I did not realize that that was the Criminal Minds person. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because, and also I did some reading on this as well. Uh, so you know the the girl, the bridesmaid who uh, Sonny is fucking in the bathroom in the first movie. That's Vincent's mom. Like, at the very beginning of the first movie, at his sister's wedding, he is fucking a bridesmaid. You, do you remember this? Yeah, kind of, yeah. At all? Yeah, that's Vincent's mom. That's... Yeah, well, Vincent so, does, because like, that's his mom. Yeah, that is his mom. So, I, I just think it's very interesting, this idea of, like, having a replacement son that's also, like, his illegitimate nephew, and, like, his... You know, this character has obviously got his father's like anger management issues, but he's able to like kind of steer him into this. What did we think about Andy Garcia and Vincent as a character? As a character, I just felt like he kept making bad choices. Like, sir, if you want to get into this, you need to like just like ease off the gas pedal one time. You can you can (laughs) flip out and move too fast like two out of three times, but not every single time. It's too much. Holy Shakespearean son-in-law, Batman. <laughs> yes. I mean, that, that pretty much sums it all up right there. Yeah, but that's the thing. He's Sonny's kid. Mm-hmm. It, what's really fascinating is the answer to the question, could someone be as successful as Vito? It's Sonny if he could just two out of three times instead of every time, just like you said, Melissa, which is why in this whole movie, This whole movie is about Vincent learning to calm the fuck down. (laughs) And and, and we have to say a little bit about this before we're done. Uh, So we'll come back to it. But the Byzantine machinations that he does at the end of the movie to take elaborate revenge on all the people that have wronged the family, that is meant to demonstrate to you that Vincent learned. He paid attention and learned. And he will be able to do what Sonny was never able to do, which is like keep cool just every once in a while. <laughs> because Sonny was supposed to be Vito's replacement, but because he couldn't be cool for a goddamn second, he got shot to death instead. And so Vincent is not going to repeat the sins of the father. His, bi- his, his, his biological actual, father. Well, I mean... Yeah. Michael is his biological... Michael is clearly, like, his father, really. But but... also, they're biologically related. Right. But the point is, like, Vincent might truly be that really small, narrow possibility. 
Well, he might be. And I know you want to say it, so you should. Oh, no, I just think it's interesting, too, because you could see that change in his uh, clothing choices, too, because at the beginning of the movie, everyone's like, oh, nice jacket or whatever, because he wears like a leather jacket yeah. to like that nice event. But by the end, he has the suit and his hair is slicked back and he, you know, he's he's got that power posturing the same way that Vito did at the beginning of the first movie as well, where he's sitting in the chair and everyone's like around him. Right. And so you have that. But what's interesting to me too, is that there was a fourth movie planned. Coppola and uh, Puzo were planning. They were actually in the process of writing a script. Puzo's movie. The movie for Puzo, the movie for Puzo. Uh, They were, they were writing a script and the plan was that they were going to do something like Godfather 2 where you had the different time periods, but instead of two time periods, it was going to be three time periods. And the first one was De Niro was going to come back and play Vito in the 30s. And then uh, Leonardo DiCaprio was going to play a very young Sonny, um, getting in, like Sonny and Tom getting into the business, right, before the events of the first Godfather movie. And then the third timeline was going to be Andy Garcia playing Vincent 10 years after the third Godfather movie in the middle of a mob war. I'm going gonna, gonna to tell my kids that The Departed is actually is Godfather actually 4. Godfather 4. Yeah, <laughs> uh, the, the reason I, I think that's interesting, Puzo died, and so they never finished the script and they never did anything with it. I think it became like an un official novel which paramount sued over it's like a whole thing but like um it would have been really interesting to see maybe more like because we get a lot of vincent and michael in this film to see like the that sort of comparison between like a younger version of sunny and vincent in the plans for like the next film but plus i would like to see more tom i'm gonna say that that character kind of gets underserved i think and i think he's honestly one of the more interesting characters in this so Duvall apparently asked for too much money, which is why we don't see him in this movie. Gotcha. Robert Duvall did great work. I, we haven't really talked about him a whole lot, but I mean, yeah, he did. I don't know that I can explain to you the entire plot of The Godfather 3. All I know is there was some embezzling going on at the Vatican, y'all, and the wrong family got involved. The Vatican is just a bigger and better crime family. They're yes, trying to go absolutely. legit, but it's just more crimes everywhere. That is, I think that's perfect. I I think no more actually needs to be said about that. More crimes everywhere. I but, like it. Now, having said that, I distinctly remember the Queen Mother died. Uh, it was late 2001, early 2002. And all I remember thinking is, here I am. I'm... How old was I? 22, maybe. And it's so weird. It's been the same Pope and the same Queen the entire time I've been alive, which is really rare if you look back in history. Mm -hmm. I had no clue how long that lady was going to live. Pope John Paul II lived for a long time. Now, I know that Pope John Paul II was installed the year I was born. I know this. I also know this movie is set the year I was born. So when they anointed Pope John Paul, period, no second, I was like, wait a damn minute. That's Pope John Paul II, except in the real world, this is how you know you don't get the two confused. In 1978, in the real world, Pope John Pope really is Pope. 
And I don't know if anointed. He was only answer. pope for like a month, yeah, right? He was pope for a month. And that's why Pope John Paul II was installed the year I was born because the first one died in a month. What I and find so, hilarious about this is that like he literally lived for a month after he became pope and this movie was like what if he died from a mafia hit? <laughs> like wouldn't that be cool? Like, and the answer is yes. <laughs> it would be cool. It was cool indeed. Because to Melissa's point, they are just another crime family. Right. Yeah. And to Dan Brown's point, they are just another crime family who are Templars. <laughs> I I did think this was interesting, the way they bring Catholicism really in this film, because it's obviously a big part of the first two films, but especially Michael's guilt over killing his brother or ordering his brother's death at the end of the second film, I think haunts him, and it haunts everything that he's doing in this film, especially. And so even that scene between him and the cardinal that would become Pope John Paul I. I think it's interesting because we've never really seen this character cry, you know, and we see him just like absolutely mm-hmm. like lose it during that scene. And it, it is an interesting side of the character, seeing him like age and like all those, all those insecurities and all that guilt kind of like bubbling up to the surface again in ways that he really hasn't been able to show it in the last two movies. When he is doing the confession, I think he says like he says he says like I killed my brother, but he also says like I killed my mother's son. And I was definitely like, there it is. You there actually you do somewhere deep, deep down within you understand how family works. Yeah. <laughs> How does it work? A little too late, but Yeah. Well, you know, better late than never. Oh. One final question about the Godfather 3. What do we think about the final fridging? Because that's what it is, isn't it? I yes. Refrigerator I... expert Tessa. <laughs> okay, look, just the point of the refrigerator is to point out how much it happens, not that it's necessarily wrong that it happens. Yeah, it feels like fridging with Apollonia more than it feels like with Mary to me. Yeah. She I, was in this life I on think, purpose. She wanted to marry her mob cousin. I, I, I mean, can't be anything worse than what happened in Shakespeare. I think it's funny. First of all, I think it's funny that Michael objected to them being together, not because they were cousins, but because he didn't want her involved in the family, like in the business. Don't have a child. What do you think is going to happen to your children when you have them and you are a mob family? Like, I exactly. I don't. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, history is on their side here uh, on the cousin thing. <laughs> That's cousin. really I'm not a... shipping the cousins to be very clear. <laughs> I wanted them to end up together. <laughs> I have never shipped an Andy Garcia character with literally anybody. And I'm not going to start now. But it's not because you think... it's not because they're okay, cousins. So because you're a romance aficionado, just like I am, Melissa, before we get to the question about her death. Do you think he would have, quote unquote, stayed strong and stayed away from her? No. Because I don't think so either. She I think told the him ending they about- were cousins in yeah. her very first attempt at seducing him. And he was like, fuck it. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I meant like at the end, because like uh, Michael was like, you can't like your price for having this is that you can't be with her. And so he like breaks up with her at the opera, which mm-hmm. by the way is a really fucking terrible place to break up with anybody. Yes, but the um, drama. 
All these yeah. scenes yeah, don't tell you think it's rather operatic, though? It's so <laughs> dramatic. I love it. <laughs> but it seems like... It seems like even by the end of the opera, he's already starting to like soften mm-hmm. on that because he like he puts her his hand on her shoulder. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know. Like to me, I'm just like they would have gotten back. Together. I think they would like, have it, too. He would not have lasted. I don't even necessarily think that he for sure like meant it when he like accepted this deal from Michael, which is that you can do this thing, but you can't be with my daughter, because at this point, everyone knows that Michael's time is limited. And I think that everyone knows that Mary's not going to stop. And so the combination of these two things is going to end with them back together. Like, I think that Vincent probably was just like, yeah, sure, that's fine. Like, this will work itself out in the end. If I'm going to be the... It'll be fine. If I'm going to be the godfather, I'm going to get whatever I want. No one's going to be able to stop me. I have to say, though, when... (laughs) When Michael is like to Mary, he's like, he's your first cousin. Like, I, you can't see him anymore. You can't. I'm like, have you ever like talked to anyone who's in love? You can't tell them first, not to be with that person. That's only going to make them want to be with that person more. She first said, cousin, first love. She <laughs> said, he says he's your first cousin. And she's like, then I'll love him first. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, but isn't I, that the, the way, best case scenario for her? Because it's like no one else would understand her. And no one else would be able to be a legitimate partner for Vincent because obviously, like, normies don't want to do this shit. And and you wouldn't have thought that if Mary was played by Winona Ryder because we would have seen her as, like, more of a... Winona Ryder's specialty when she was younger was more of that shrinking, Mm -hmm. like, counterculture, whatever kind of person. She, it, we wouldn't have believed that she was strong enough to stand up to to Vincent, to be a part of that family. Yeah. I don't think so. Although him telling her, when she said, uh, she says, like, you're the only one I've ever loved, or you're the only one I love, and he says, love someone else. Like, I, like, and he's, like, got the tears in his eyes, like, A-plus drama. Like, so good. So happy for you. So but, we- and, and. And, and, while we're on the death of Mary Corleone, that's not what the, the, the film's called. Right. I do find it fascinating that at no point in this film does Michael die on camera. <laughs> Even though it's called the death of Michael Corleone. He also does not die off camera. <laughs> My- well, actually, that's not true. He may have died off camera temporarily. He's still alive to this day. He's still alive to this day. Are we supposed to believe that the death of his daughter is his death? I think yes. That is how it felt to me. From Michael's perspective, it's like, if I can't go legitimate in time to not have my daughter killed, then it's a failure. And for for men like that, I think that failure is death. The other way to look at it is... This was the death that was intended for Michael Corleone because he was the one being shot at, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So the death, the, 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 it was actually inscribed on the bullet. It said the death of Michael Corleone. <laughs> no, but but metaphorically speaking, it was it was meant to be his death. So it is the death of Michael Corleone. It just, the wrong person died. 
Well, and the other thing, too, is that it is important that her name is Mary. And I talked about this a little bit because it brings back that Catholicism as well, because in there are there are several scenes in this movie in these three movies. But there are two scenes specifically in this movie where you see the procession of I don't know. I don't know what Catholic holiday it is or what Italian Catholic holiday it is, but where they're carrying the Virgin Mary. Um, you have the the guys who look like the clan. I don't think they're the clan, but they're like carrying the the statue of uh, of the Maria. And in both scenes, something bad happens and she the statue falls to the mm, ground mm-hmm. and like breaks. And then uh, this is supposed to tell us that she's going to die right at the at the end of the film. And I think bringing that back in, like the idea of family, but also the idea that she's supposed to be the best part of him and the best part of like the best thing that he did. Right. Like the idea that she is like got this religious significance to him and losing her is like, well, what's what's even the point? You know, like what was the point of everything? And so, yeah, I think that, that it is very interesting. Plus, that last scene is really good, like, of them on the um, on the steps of the opera, and they're all having, like, their different reactions to her death. And, mm-hmm. like, it, it's, it's a really kind of tough scene to watch. And Al Pacino is doing excellent work there as well. Yeah, I think um, something I didn't mention about Al Pacino's performance yet is that he does the, like, no emotion to just rage screaming so well. And obviously, this is recency bias because we just talked about Star Wars. But I was like, oh, hi, Kylo Ren. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if that film was made in the 70s, would it be Al Pacino playing Kylo Ren? Oh, maybe. He's maybe. not, like, big enough. Adam Driver is a very uh, that's big fair. boy. He is pretty short. Which I was reminded of in this movie. I like there are they try not to emphasize his height in this movie, but there were a couple scenes where I'm like, oh, you're really short. I forgot you're short. By the way, the hood is called a caparote. I may have pronounced that incorrectly, but that's what it is. It is used in a couple of ceremonies, like the ones we saw, uh, to indicate uh being penitent. Ah, okay. So it just looked like a clan rope Yet to me, and I was like, America I'm pretty sure that's not a clan rope, yeah. but that's what it looks like. Speaking of Star Wars, let's move to final thoughts. Which bestie made the better trilogy, you guys, Francis or George? I mean, for me personally, probably George. Because I like yeah. I like my really long movie trilogies to have like magic in them and just a higher mm-hmm. ratio of hot people. Okay. Yeah, I I have to agree with you. The I'm also more likely to rewatch point, really. Star Wars. <laughs> I, yeah. We are talking about the original trilogy, not the prequel yes. trilogy, yes. right? Yeah. Does the answer change? No. <laughs> I am more likely to rewatch Star Wars than I am to rewatch Godfather. Yep. Like, I'm not going to like sit down one day and go, you know what? I'm going to rewatch Godfather like on a whim. Like, I, I mean, I will, but like. I'll have to like work up to it. Star Wars, I could sit down and like. Well, you're not also very likely to watch the History Channel either. That's fair. So you're definitely in the wrong demographic. Yeah, I am. <laughs> but it is a very good trilogy. Much better than I thought it was going to be. And part three, I feel like, is unfairly maligned. Mm-hmm. I still think that the hype around these films is a lot of men thinking that men's stories are universal. But I would probably watch them again. They are quite good. Melissa, final thoughts? 
Yeah, I'm in agreement with most of that. I I don't have specific plans to revisit this, but I do plan in my life to revisit this and think about how my relationship to it has changed. Um, So that's always exciting uh, to embark on a new adventure. And I have some movie posters in here, and I'm going to get to scratch off some titles now. And so that is very exciting. That is exciting. (laughs) And that is... No matter no matter what else, that is what we're here to do, right? Yep. That is pop culture productivity. <laughs> that is what we do. All right. Now, I don't know that we need to spend every episode doing such a gargantuan project like this. So next time... Hmm. Whoops. <laughs> next time, Elise joins us as we move from the A-team of organized crime to the B-team. That's right. Bring all your Garden State jokes because we're going to New Jersey to talk about the first two seasons of The Sopranos. Woo! More mob stories. <laughs> More, More bad men doing bad things. I've seen uh. the first nine episodes of the first season of The Sopranos, so I'm considering watching that finale before next week. It's not that much more. <laughs> I mean, it's only 13... 13- we, episodes per season. We finished the first season earlier today, and we're recording in four days with Elise. So hopefully, we'll get through that second season. Your guys is like we'll make a good speech show, patterns but. are going to be changed to mob people when you're done <laughs> watching. I, mean, all that. I asked. So I'm I asked Tessa. Lie. I asked Tessa because, of course, Lorraine Bracco is in Goodfellas, and that is Scorsese's, you know, big statement or his first. Of many, I guess, in terms of organized crime. And I said to her, I said, so have I proven to you that the third side of this triangle is Goodfellas? And she said, sure. And then I said, so are we going to watch it this year? Sure. Anytime soon? No. (laughs) (laughs) Too much mob. I will say, though, that between the Sopranos and the Godfather trilogy, I am very hungry for some Italian food. Like. There's so much good food pictured in both of these mm-hmm. things. And like also Italian men making like red sauce. Like, come on. Like, there's a, isn't there a scene? What, who, it's in The Godfather yeah, where he's who, like making, he's like you, you put, he's, he's trying to calm Sonny down. Yeah. And he's like, you put in the, your tomatoes and you're, you know, you, you have your salt and you're like, it's yeah. like, it's like a great scene. Like, and then, yeah. And then uh, Vincent is showing her how to make gnocchi. When they oh my first when they touch hands, yeah. their, their little ghost moment. Yeah. <laughs> Gross. Anyway, I'm just saying, Italian men making food. Yes. Yes. On that note, Meatballs. Melissa, where can people find you online? Um, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Mellow Yellow and co-hosting the Wild Pretty Things podcast. Hey, there we go. All right. Tessa? You can find me on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Storygraph at The Buy Paradox. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Ogg's Book Club, where my friend Nigel and I are reading through all of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. By the time this comes out, I believe we will just released an episode on The Last Hero. You can find that on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club. And on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. I have no podcast to plug. You can find me on Twitter. We're listening to it. I just <laughs> have the one. 
You can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris nine. You can find me on Letterboxd and Storygraph at Melody Valentine. You can also find writing from both myself and from Tessa on moviejohn.com. That's movie, J-A-W-N.com. Tessa has a series that she's already started, a couple of entries. Latest entry is on Metropolis. It's called Artificial Bodies, Artificial Lives. I will have a series debuting later this month about time travel. I don't know what it's called. Probably not Great Scott Marty, though, although that would be a good Martin Scorsese series. Anyway, you can also join us for Momble's 2023 Reading Challenge on Storygraph. We'll be talking about it in three weeks on this very podcast. In the meantime, tell us your thoughts about The Godfather or what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes. You can find us on Twitter at Monkey Backlog, where you'll also find the link to join our Discord community, which you might also be able to find in the description for this very podcast episode. New year, it's Mobile 2.0. We're figuring out how to read ourselves out still. You can also email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Please take a moment to rate or review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back. (laughs) We did it!